Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. I'm your host, Nicholas Rapold. When I asked critic Margaret Barton Fumo what she wanted to talk about on the podcast, the answer was clear. Benedetta. Paul Verhoeven's new movie is in theaters now, months after its premiere at Cannes. The story is set mostly in a convent in the 17th century, following its title character as she becomes a nun and rises in the ranks. The movie is typically bold and provocative about the workings of power and organized religion, and about Benedetta's rich fantasy life. Margaret has long been immersed in Verhoeven's world and talked with the director at length as part of her book of interviews with him. Joining the party is critic Adam Neyman, another Verhoeven head and author of It Doesn't Suck, Showgirls. We talked about Benedetta also in the context of Verhoeven's long and varied career moving between blockbuster and arthouse. At the end, I also can't resist asking them about Licorice Pizza, another new release. Look out for Margaret's review of Benedetta on Screen Slate and Adam's forthcoming writing on the subject. Couldn't pass up the chance of talking about Benedetta with two wonderful guests. To begin with, uh, Margaret Barton Fumo. Hello, Margaret. Hi, Nick. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And thanks also for suggesting our second guest, who is uh, Adam Naiman. Welcome, Adam. Hi, Nick. Hi, Margaret. (laughs) So this is a movie that, you know, I think as with actually most Paul Verhoeven movies, was preceded with, you know, all manner of information, misinformation, hype, scandal before the the event, scandal afterwards, um, all of which, you know, typically obscures what's really going on in the movie, I think. Margaret, you saw it at the New York Film Festival? Yeah, I saw it at the New York Film Festival. And interestingly, I saw it really as a civilian. You know, I just, uh-huh. I was, I had a press pass, but I just wanted to see it, you know. Mm-hmm. But I really liked it. And then I kept thinking about it. And I, and I was noticing so many, like, connections to other of his films that I actually, which is very rare for me, I felt compelled uh, to write on it and talk about it. So, and Adam, did you see it through Toronto or? Well, it, it was not at last. Uh, it was not at uh, this past September's Toronto International Film Festival. Oh, good point. Which was <laughs> a notable omission, and I know enough about how you know festivals and programming work to not assume. Let's say that it was rejected on grounds of quality or taste. It could have had something to do with the distributor, it could have had something to do with with the premiere, but let's just say that it was notable Mm -hmm. because each of Verhoeven's last two films, while they certainly didn't premiere in Toronto, Black Book and and Elle, uh, were here, right? So it's kind of odd that it wasn't here, and then I kind of see that as everyone I knew in New York saw it, and, you know, my friends who know that Verhoeven is a, a significant figure for me as someone as I've written about a filmmaker I really like, sent me all kinds of taunting messages <laughs> from the screening. And then uh, I tried for a long time to get a screener of it. And, and I think that the distributor was, was either getting instructions about, you know, withholding for a while or kind of cagey given the content of the movie. Mm. And then in a miracle worthy of the movie itself, <laughs> uh, finally able to see it uh, last week and then uh, very suddenly out of nowhere it's opening at the tiff bell Lightbox in toronto so after the festival didn't take the film uh the the building that tiff is attached to is going to play it for its commercial run and i'm going to obviously go see it again to see it on a screen because you know he's one of my favorite filmmakers and that's the least that i can do with with any of his features yeah um 
I, I noticed recently that you, uh, you know, you kind of had a running classification of Verhoeven <laughs> films. And actually, I sent this to Margaret mm -hmm. a little, little <laughs> while ago, just because I thought it was intriguing, you know, which you classify, I want to get it right. So I'm just pulling it up. <laughs> I assure you that whatever I wrote is very stupid. So it <laughs> no, I thought it was it was fun. Um, obviously, you know, you in the cosmology of uh, of Verhoeven, uh, yeah. Showgirls, understandably, as a pride of place. I, but I was just interesting how you classify them, where you know where you, for lack of a better word, kind of rate the movies. And yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not. I like. I'm looking at it right now too, and I love it though because it's not a ranking at all. Though. Right, it's, exactly. it's like classification. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Um, so we have greats, which I guess I, I can agree with. A Black Book, L, Robocop, and Starship Troopers. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I, I can pretty much go with that. I think you've <laughs> caused some controversy with uh, a category that just says LOL, um, <laughs> where uh, Total Recall is, is snug up just against uh, Flesh and Blood. Um, <laughs> but I, Benedetta is listed under Blondes Have More Fun. <laughs> Right Very on point. I think that's totally <laughs> on point. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think uh, I think it's alongside a couple movies that maybe Margaret or maybe you would agree or inevitably we'll get to discussing them in the mm -hmm. context of the movie. Because when Margaret was saying she felt resonances with the other films, yeah. this is the most I've ever felt like he has made a kind of self highlight real movie. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, there's entire sequences uh, restaged from from some of these movies, like from Cotty Tipple and from from the fourth man, but also, you know, the, the enigmatic nature of the protagonist, it's a very different context, but I was reminded of, of basic instinct uh, mm -hmm. uh, to, mm -hmm. to, to, to some extent, like I say, a different genre, mm -hmm. a different dramatic context, but that sense of mystery and that mm -hmm. sort of sense of temptation and self-possession and, and I was also moved to ruminate the other day, and maybe Margaret, you know, you tell me what, what, what you think of this, or if I'm just being a creep when I say this, <laughs> notwithstanding uh, Hollow Man and Starship Troopers, and that's a big notwithstanding because those are two features, right? Mm -hmm. But if you, if you scoop those ones out or if you put them to the side, but from basic instinct through uh, Showgirls, and then to Black Book, L and, and Benedetta, that's five out of seven movies. Has any male director, European <laughs> director, of his age and vintage had five female protagonists, notwithstanding how interesting they are, mm. but just sort of at, at, at the center of movies? I mean, it's really an incredible run of, of movies sort of about women with really fascinating, thorny uh, you know, compelling female characters at the center. It's it's kind of rarefied, I think, for a director of his age and his 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 stature as a male director to kind of have that on his uh, on his resume. Yeah, mm. and different women and different actresses too. I mean, you have someone like very different, obviously, someone like um, Christian Petzold, you know, who like pairs up with someone like Nina Haas, sure. Or someone who's really just gets this creative relationship with an with an actress, but Paul just uh, he's just fascinated by women, you know, and he said so in in many interviews. And um, I think his if if you were to point that out to him, he would just say that that women are more interesting, in his opinion, you know. Well, he well he he sort of identified this survivor archetype way back in Cotty Tipple, right? Yeah. Which is, I think, one of the least 
accessible of his movies. It really has never been. Oh, I really like that one. I really like that one. Yeah. It's great. I mean, for anyone who hasn't seen it, it's this sort of, I think it's late 17th or early 18th century picaresque about a a, a, a kind of status climbing by necessity, right? Mm -hmm. That one is the real proto showgirls, you know. Oh, a million percent. It's the proto. A million percent is the proto showgirls, and it's a, a great picaresque for him because it's about a. It couldn't be more linear as a narrative. It's got this beautiful left to right structure, but it's all about social mobility, kind of up and down. Like it's a quintessential mm-hmm. picaresque structure, which also means that it's very lurid and florid and 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 sexual. But it is really all about different things that these female that this female character can leverage in terms of survival and success, and he returns to that time and again and there's no question for me that benedetta to an extent to a significant extent i think is about survival mm-hmm. right in a, in, in a world uh not to put too fine a point on it but a world that hates women yeah for sure and i feel like also he, when he turns to uh lesbian relationships uh which of course are very sexy and he 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 exploits that uh, wonderfully he's also uh, introducing lesbian re- relationships because he's acknowledging that all of the men in his films are uniformly like horrible, sure. <laughs> you know, and uh, uh, aside from, you know, being attracted to each other and, and having friendships with each other, the women kind of turn to each other because the men are just, uh, just awful, you know? Well, the, he's kind of almost, I mean, I, I, I've spent, spent lots of times joking, a lot of time in my life joking about Paul Verhoeven, too much probably. I should have like read other books and stuff instead of just talking, you know, to my friends, uh, with my friends about his movies. But I have friends, we've always joked that he's like one of the great feminist filmmakers partially by default, right? <laughs> yeah. Because his, I mean, first of all, there aren't a lot of filmmakers who've worked at his at his budget level and in his you know you know slice of the mainstream who are remotely interested in 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 women beyond sort of you know decoration or as props mm-hmm. and then you know he's also a great misandrist because he hates men yeah <laughs> you know, he's he's sort of i mean beyond an equal opportunity offender he has so much more respect i think for the kind of intelligence and resourcefulness and to even a lot of the times the morality of his of his of his female characters but he also takes those things and often when he's good he sharpens them in the direction of critique mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and i thought that this was a pretty among many ways that it's funny it's a pretty funny movie about what happens when you know male power structure in this movie's universe gets wind that there's someone there's a woman sort of claiming to speak for jesus this is like threatening on two levels mm-hmm. You know, it's like a woman, a woman speaking up and then a woman speaking literally and figuratively in the voice mm-hmm. of, you know, of, of, of the savior. I mean, it's just so destabilizing. Yeah. And when I see those kind of dynamics in his movies, I'm of the kind of fan base of his that just, you know, I, I, he, I start laughing the moment his movies begin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm, I'm happy too, because I feel like with Benedetta, like, at least in my opinion, I feel like he finally has made his Jesus movie. You know, everyone has been saying for decades, like, when is he going to make the Jesus movie? It's just such a hot topic, like for decades, uh, you know, and he, he's been trying to make this Jesus film forever. And in my opinion, I mean, he's made it. I think he made it Mm. with Benedetta. Well, when I interviewed him for the second edition of my showgirls book, he talked about something that he's talked about elsewhere, but 
he, he seemed kind of keen to talk about it. I didn't leave all that he said in the book, but you know, that when he was really hot off of basic instinct, it's not just that he wanted to make his crusades movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger, mm-hmm. but like he could have, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And I've always thought that, you know, if, if, if Scorsese kind of had his livelihood and career threatened for last temptation, then whatever Paul would have done, they would have literally crucified him because it would have been so sacrilegious, but he would have had so many eyes on it. I mean, mm-hmm. if he had made, you know, a, a film with the crusades with Schwarzenegger, which I think was going to be quite contentious and quite self-critical, you know, I, you can't imagine he ever would have played that straight. There would have been so many eyes on it yeah, because of Schwarzenegger and because of, Paul's own industrial profile at that time, mm-hmm. you know, in a way, maybe that would have been his showgirls, even if showgirls had never been made. Yeah. What's what's funny about Benedetta is that while it's a kind of glossy Euro co-production and it played a can and it's opening, it's not a big enough movie, I think, to piss the world off. It's got a very self-selecting audience, I think, of people who kind of like him. Mm-hmm. So in a way, I'm glad he's made his Jesus movie, but it's also maybe better he's made it working in more of a niche because if he had ever made his Jesus movie or something more or less like it with when he had the budget and the 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 industrial status he had in the 90s I mean he could have got himself killed yeah it would have been a real uh there's a real potential butterfly effect that we could imagine yeah, yeah you're right yeah. but it's interesting I mean just thinking about context of the movie coming out I mean this is not obvious. I don't think this is going to be the focus of what we're talking about, but it is interesting that the movie comes out, you know, after like a 10, I don't know, 15 year period of the church, the Catholic church, at least just kind of being laid bare as, mm. uh, you know, having a, a number of systemic problems that seem insurmountable to a certain extent uh, and compromising. Um, and I mean, this, what struck me most about this movie partly is just how unlike it was any description I was reading of it. But yeah, the social climbing aspect that I don't know if we need to recap the plot exactly, but Benedetta enters a convent at a very young age. When she grows up, she eventually ascends in, in power through a series of, I don't know, it's almost like sleight of hand um, mm-hmm. interpretations of things that happen to her, or maybe don't happen to her, but it's, it could be like a management text. Um <laughs> Because it's more or less a movie about what you do with the situation you're handed, you know, and image control, um, Mm -hmm. which overrides any kind of religious interpretation of film. It's it's cynical, though not an emptily cynical view of the workings of this particular organization. (laughs) Yeah, I was thinking it also is in a way kind of like a don't they call them problem films that became Uh big like in the 40s like I feel like an aspect of it it, it's like a problem film where the satire is all about yeah the the church um and he's kind of showing like this is what happened when happens when you put women into a convent at a young age and you punish people for their sexuality and like you like this is what's going to happen like <laughs> the, the problem to quote the sound of music how how do you how do you solve a problem like benedetta right <laughs> you know? she, i mean it's true that there's a lot of good lines in the script although the the script to me is not the strongest mm. part of the, the of the film the way it was in l by the same writer david burke but there's that great line where she sort of says marty maybe fixed the exact quote but it's kind of something you know like i've always been taught that you know my body is the problem mm-hmm. or yeah i actually i think i wrote it down it's it's i don't know if we're referring to the same thing but one of the sisters says to her 
uh, when she first comes to the convent, she says like her her uh, habit is like kind of itchy, and the sister. Yeah. Yeah, the sister says to her, your worst enemy is your body. It's best not to feel at home in it. I mean. And yet, and yet you know, within the context of the, the time and place, and of course, because he's a smart, like all smart historical filmmakers, he, he conjures up the past as a way of kind of folding it over the present, right? You know, we're, we're still not in a moment of bodily autonomy for anybody, mm-hmm. but particularly not for, 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 for women, you know, regardless of, 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 of which social context you want to bring up. It's often just a matter of degrees. And you sort of see the extent to which biology imperils, you know, half the population in this movie and the compromises that they're sort of, you know, willing w- willing to make to protect and save themselves. When Nick called it a management text, I laughed out loud. <laughs> it's, it's, it's true. And what I like is one of the things that Benedetta is angling for is in a way this like heightened privacy, but that also allows her to have a companion in her room. <laughs> I mean, when she becomes the abbess, it's really funny. That's like what she gets mm-hmm. is it's kind of like at a hotel. It's like you get a better room now, <laughs> you know? And, and as a result, she can fool around with, you know, someone who had previously just kind of been her neighbor through a scrim or, or through a sheet. But that whole stretch of the movie where what she's really leveraged these divine visions into is kind of, you know, like private sex time Mm -hmm. uh, behind closed doors is really quite funny. And then you get into the whole second part of the film where you have all these motifs of like voyeurism and Mm -hmm. surveillance and peepholes and sort of hidden icons and, 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 and hidden sex toys or whatever, which sort of play into the enclosed nature of where the film is set. Like there's an awful lot in this movie kind of about peeping and, and looking. And that's also pretty funny for a movie that at least kind of touches on the divine, right. And the ephemeral, I mean, you can't, you're not supposed to be able to see that stuff. Mm -hmm. It's kind of supposed to be hidden by its nature. She also gets off on uh, punishing people and, uh, being in in that position of uh, of power, I think he's really critiquing a lot of this the inherent sadism of Catholicism and uh, how people you know use it to their own advantage. But it's also interesting how she seems to be in a kind of state of arrested development to a certain extent. I mean, which you know I, I think that's partly a byproduct of being put into this pressure. Yeah, that's the, the problem. Way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, exactly. And it's kind of fascinating to see how confidently she, she moves through the world and yet she's having these visions, which, and these kind of fantasies that are like, I mean, I don't even know how to describe them. It's like if the they're rest like of romance the- novel, Fabio, yeah. Jesus. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's bodice, bodice ripper. Yeah. I mean, if the rest of the convent could could see that, that that's the basis <laughs> mm-hmm. of her so-called like public belief, it's kind of incredible that kind of disjunction. So she, I, I agree, it's about the church, and it's also like particularly she is a character who is still growing, let's say. Mm-hmm. Because he's a consummate artist, you know. That's No, that's not said sarcastically. I mean, one of the things I find moving about the film, this might seem like a weird analogy, it's kind of what I liked about Brian De Palma's Domino as well, is that, no matter how much you diminish these guys in terms of their resources and how many logos they have to get on their co-production, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, they know how to make movies, right? Yeah. And and I think that also Verhoeven is someone who, even if people snicker at that word, artist, he has a worldview and it matters to him. If it didn't, he would just leave the worldview out and still be making movies in Hollywood, right? He's, he's, he's an earnest guy, even as a cynic and a satirist. Mm-hmm. 
But uh, because he's an artist, he frames a lot of what Nick was just talking about and you guys were talking about in terms of those visions. The first time she has one is in the context of a pageant mm-hmm. where we very clearly see that she is like in costume, playing a part. She's being elevated by wires and pulleys. It's kind of like a nun skit, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like summer camp. They're like they're like putting on a play for the nuns, mm-hmm. basically. Like an illustrated an illustrated Bible passage. And it's in the context of this backstage, behind-the-scenes framing of her that she has her first vision of Fabio Jesus, like mm-hmm. in a field of sheep, being like, you know, come to me. And I thought that seeing the wires and seeing the backstage stuff kind of Two, did two things for me. I mean, one, it was Verhoeven acknowledging to some extent he's working on a bit of a small canvas. This is not a film whose, who's, let's say, uh, world is completely convincing. It's quite cheap, you know, mm-hmm. uh, which is something that sometimes worked to Benwell's advantage and Rivette's advantage as well with period pieces, but it is kind of quite cheap. But it also is very much kind of about the, that line between, you know, fantasy and and, and showmanship and imagination, mm-hmm. you know, I think her, her visions are incredibly cheesy and that's <laughs> where the potency is because again, of the, the, the extent to which they're about imaginative life and, and fantasy, like I'm even down with the bad CGI as a, as a byproduct of all that. Mm-hmm. He pulled it off. Yeah. And, and I saw that scene also as uh, this is a, a corny, a corny phrase, but I really think he's presenting this, this argument too that religion is theater you know and he's it's not so much about especially within catholicism i mean it's not Mm -hmm. so much about belief as it is about you know putting on this this show of faith and uh he's he's showing the he's showing the the wires like behind the whole thing yeah 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 I mean, I was really struck also by how Benedetta, I mean, this is where the movie becomes like interesting as like a political allegory uh, as well. You know, the question that I think for me became a refrain over the past 20 years, it's like, is the leader evil or just ignorant? (laughs) Uh, You know, are they doing it on on purpose or are they oblivious? Which is worse, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and and what what are the proportions there? The opening sequences of the movie are so remarkable because she has this absolute innocence. I mean, that starts with her as a child and she appears to have summoned, you know, bird droppings that interrupt like this <laughs> assault by these brigands or something. Um, yeah. And you, you believe it, you believe her at that stage because why, why wouldn't you? She's a child. And then she seems to carry that. But then it's like, at what point um, does that, you know, curdle into something else? And at mm-hmm. what point is it just become like a very canny self-aware deployment of you know an outward naive belief she's also really drawn to the limelight you know uh, from a very young age throughout to the end of the film i mean she kind of like uh directs her own passion play (laughs) at one point and i feel like that is has the strongest resonance with showgirls really with the character of nomi from showgirls whereas i kind of want to just point out quickly like I know the film is barely even out yet, but so many people already are just comparing it to showgirls like so frequently. And I think they're kind of missing the mark, you know, in Mm. some ways, the relationship between the two women is they're not in competition like in showgirls. It's not really as much as I want to say this is like a backstage convent (laughs) drama. It's not. (laughs) It's it's more of a like a power, like a intense kind of sexual power play between two women. Yeah, I mean, I uh, as as someone with 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 many thoughts on showgirls, yeah. uh, 
I think you're you're more than right. And I think that, you know, in some ways, Showgirls was in the 90s shorthand for one thing, and now it's become shorthand for something else about Fairhoven. So when people are comparing Benedetta to, to Showgirls, I think they're doing so in a baseline kind of complimentary way. Mm-hmm. And in a baseline kind of a tourist way, you know, like it's kind of safe now to like showgirls and sort of acknowledge that there's an excess and an absurdity to it that's purposeful. So, you know, apply that equally to, to all the movies. But I think his reference points have changed. I mean, when I interviewed him for mm-hmm. L, he was really delighted mostly to talk about Benoit and to talk about Renoir. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you guys caught the rules of the game reference in this one. Mm-hmm where you see the dancing skeleton costume folks, you know, they are yeah. a, a nod to, to rules of the game. And obviously, you know, this idea of sort of the, the, the innocent initiate being sort of corrupted by other people's hangups and, and fetishes and internalizing them into her own, you know, uh, heightened sense of goodness is very Verdiana, mm. right? Which, which is one of his favorite movies. Mm. So I don't think that those filmmakers have suddenly become of interest to, mm. to Paul. He's always been interested in them. Any interview you read with him back in the 70s, he talked about, you know, Renoir and Benoit and, and, and that period of kind of early mid 20th century auteur cinema meaning a lot to him. I think what's funny now is when you put together where he's making movies, how they're being financed, the fact that he's become a festival circuit filmmaker instead of a, you know, 4th of July weekend filmmaker. He joked with me one of the times that we talked. He says, well, I guess I'm an art filmmaker now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Again, he's come full circle. And in Benedetta, I feel that even with the chintziness and the cheesiness, there's things in the casting and there's things in the filming and there's things in the tone. And as and as you guys are describing it, I think quite rightly as a kind of a, a political critique, you know, there's things in the angling of the movie that that fit with that, that he's he's he's. Right, quite wryly leaning into this idea that he's in a, a late style phase of his filmmaking. And I think it suits him really nicely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. He's showing his uh, research a lot, not just with his like his, his history buff kind of <laughs> thing mm-hmm. that he's always had going on, but other like uh filmic references that I noticed on my second watch that I really appreciated. Like there's definitely a visual reference to um, black narcissus and the devils too i don't have to say exactly what it is it doesn't matter but he clearly like he did some homework like watching his nun movies <laughs> before doing this and i just know from reading reading about his process when he made um flesh and blood which i'm very fond of i saw a lot of uh parallels with flesh and blood too that he just he loves history he loves doing research and he really puts it into his films i mean he uses the uh the plague in flesh and blood too and he's always said in interviews that um he saw the plague as as an early instance of biological warfare where people would kind mm. of in in flesh and blood they like i forget what they do they one of the characters like there there's some plague infested meat or a rat or something that they throw oh, yeah. they throw over like <laughs> into enemy territory to spread the plague and Mm. That there's a similar kind of situation going on in in Benedetta too. Yeah. Well, and he he lucked into in a way a plague context for his movie, right? Yes. And yeah. Benedetta was supposed to play at Cannes in yeah in 2020, where the plague would have been much like you say it would have been uh, a connection to flesh and blood. It would have fit with his overall sense of 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 the grotesque. But you know now watching the film, even some of the trade reviews now that it's come out, they sort of say, you know, what an interestingly 
timely or coincidentally timely kind of COVID movie because there's a pressurized anxiety in the surrounding society about people kind of getting sick. And of course the church is looked to as a a sanctuary, not just in terms of, you know, God's grace and protection, but I mean, it means you're also literally not out with the disgusting, you know, boil infested crowds. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And there is a huge role that infection plays in this movie. I mean, we don't want to spoil Mm. the plot, but it's a, it's a big narrative component of it for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's a great way of playing out how the characters are very politically savvy and like reading the signs, you know, (laughs) is all part of it. Um, And I really appreciated that watching it a a second time. And I, I think maybe I was, maybe I was a bit more fond of the script the second time as well. I just felt like the way it was setting things up was really quite skillful and smooth. I, I, when I was in New York a couple of weeks ago, I saw uh, a, a mutual friend of all of ours. I won't name him because I don't want to embarrass him, but he's a really good film critic uh, and an editor. And he liked Benedetta Fine. He didn't like it as much as, as I do, but he said that he was what he liked about it was just, he's like, it's just so well told as a story. And this mm. is someone who knows how to tell a story and how to set up relationships with characters. And, you know, I, I, I often think of this, that, you know, the, the bad boys or the daredevils or the punchlines of the 90s now kind of stand at different ages and different contexts, but kind of as the last classicists, you know? Right. Like, like when Verhoeven was making stuff like Total Recall, if you were to say to someone, first of all, he's still going to be making movies in 30 years and they're going to be art movies, they would sort of say, what? <laughs> but then the idea that we would sort of be talking about him in this veteran phase of his career as a, you know, a rare example of a director who's a dramatist, right? Mm-hmm. Not a, not an aesthetic-based filmmaker. He doesn't really have a signature style mm-hmm. for Hoven, And he's talked about that. He said that that's why Dutch critics didn't like him in the beginning, because they couldn't identify him by his camera they could identify him by by what he was interested in mm. you know he's not a long take filmmaker he's not a aesthetic ham filmmaker he's he he doesn't use you know non-continuity editing he's he's pretty you know straight straightforward he's just very very gifted at it mm. and it's not that many people making movies at this level that are mm-hmm. that benedetto right. just looks like a, a masterful piece of narrative you know it does. I kind of, I kind of miss uh, Gerard Sotman though too, as his yeah. collaborator, uh, who apparently started the screenplay or wrote most of the screenplay and then jumped ship. Supposedly, I read because he didn't like how Verhoeven was really uh, overly sexualizing it. I don't know, but um, I'm still not sure um, how I feel about his collaborations with David with David Burke. I. I don't know. It's definitely different. When he made Elle, as I'm sure Margaret, because Margaret mm-hmm. researches the hell out of him. I mean, you know everything because you, you're saying everything you're saying is true. Like mm-hmm. that script was written in one language mm-hmm. and then translated into English because they thought they were going to make it as an American movie. Yeah. And then translated back again. And hearing him describe, and you know, I mean, Burke before that did not exactly have a sterling track record. I mean, this is with all respect to David Burke. And David Burke, if you're listening, I love the script for it. <laughs> yeah. It was, he is definitely you know, listening. <laughs> well, who knows? It was not like going out and getting like, you know, this like crack shot writer for hire, right? Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because Sodman and Esterhaz both suit Verhoeven so well. And so does his other consistent writer, Ed Neumeyer, you know, with, with, with you know, Robocop, the Starship Troopers. 
but yeah, there's always these kind of like falling out or breaks with these important writing collaborators. And if I don't know, I don't know if you guys would agree with this, but the best movie of his kind of European exile period post Hollywood is still Black Book for sure. And that's, and that's the script. Yeah, is brilliant. Yeah, and when you the, talk about like a classical style, a lot of that yeah. I think comes from uh, Soderman's writing, his script. Oh, his, his, yeah, his writing and the fact that that movie up and down the ensemble, the characters are shaded so, so, so well. I mean, they're well cast and they're well directed, but there's like about 10 interesting people in that movie, even if the mm. only one you can look at is Carice Van Houten. Like, mm. she's bouncing off of good characters. Mm. I think the, the the bench isn't quite as deep in Benedetta. Well, maybe we can talk quickly about about the cast. I mean, it's it's interesting. Virginie Efira. I mean, she's obviously very quickly positioning herself as as an actress who you know will take risks. And will, will, you know, I mean, I actually did like her quite a bit in Sybil. I was saying, thinking the same thing. I loved her in Sybil. Yeah. And in in this one, you know, it's kind of it's kind of similar. I mean, it's raw, just in the sense of playing a character that. Uh, you know, on some levels is kind of despicable. <laughs> um, and so I think that's kind of bold as well. And and there's something, I mean, I say this with the knowledge that she was a TV presenter in, in, mm. in France. So interesting. this kind of very classical, it's like her face could be on a coin or something. Yeah. Well, that's why she reminded me, uh, I mean, the thing that I'm writing about this, I, I try and talk about this a bit, it reminds me a bit of Stone and Basic Instinct, mm. right? Uh, uh-huh. Uh, you know, that ability, as you say, she knows how to present herself. She knows when to withhold. She sort of knows when to, you know, when 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 to go big. And obviously there's a tremendous trust she seems to have in, in Verhoeven. But the power relationship in this movie is different, I think, than the one in L. The best quotes that Verhoeven gave during the press tour for L, if you guys remember, was he said, like, I didn't direct Isabel Huppert, right? Mm-hmm. It's a very endearing thing for him to say, mm-hmm. as he sort of talked about how, and he was being very uh, shade throwing here, whether it's at Stone, who's had issues with him over the years, mm-hmm. or, or 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 at Berkeley. He sort of said, you know, like he's like, I've never had an instrument like that before to play, and you know, what could I tell her that she doesn't know? And it's an amazing collaboration. You know, I feel like in 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 Black Book, where I think Therese Van Houten is amazing she's clearly being directed by him and shaped by him because it's such mm. a vulnerable part. Mm. And I thought that uh, the actress here, that, uh, that that she's kind of somewhere in between that. Mm-hmm. She's a little older and more experienced and more seasoned than Van Houten was. And she's in L, so she has the, the, the past experience with him. I don't think she owns the movie like Huppert did, mm. right? But mm-hmm. she's definitely a confident uh, a confident actress and she's willing to go to those places. So I think it's a good collaboration and she's seemed very happy to talk about the movie like this. It seems like they, the two of them had fun, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> which isn't always the case on, on his sets. Right. Yeah. So, right. Yeah. Well, I mean, she has an interesting quality. I, there's also something a little impersonal. Like I'm, I'm sort of, some part of me has been waiting for people to kind of sharpen the knives for her in a way. I, I don't know how to put it. There is something, yeah, maybe. I mean, as you say, she she doesn't really, um, despite being like the title character and the driving force in the movie, there is a way that she doesn't dominate entirely. And I, I don't know really know how to, how to explain that. And well, I- like like Stone and Basic Instincts, she has a very essential like ambiguity to her character. Mm. It's written like so similarly to uh, Catherine Trammell, the Stone character, mm. where 
you know, he wants to keep us guessing as to how much she knows, how culpable she is, how strong is her faith, how guilty, you know, she is. And down to like having, you know, in Basic Instinct, we have the ice pick and in Benedetta, we have this shard, this yeah. shard of uh, pottery or whatever it is, which is kind of like a clue. Margaret, you and I need to hang out. More. <laughs> yeah, we need to have a little <laughs> gossip because I've got more. I've got some things that I probably shouldn't. Uh, some some of my uh, uh, talk about creepy uh, uh, impressions of of this film. <laughs> no, but as you were saying it, my brain was sort of saying it along with you in my head because I thought that too about that particular item that you're describing, mm-hmm. and I thought that you know sometimes it's. I mean, Reverse Shot currently has this interesting symposium going on on objects and cinema, and someone wrote an essay on the ice pick in Basic mm-hmm. Instinct mm-hmm. Uh, as a as a totem of the. The Trammell character, it's cold and it's sharp and it's hidden. And I thought that, you know, to expand that, the, the item we're talking about here, which, you know, spoiler alert, mm-hmm. is a, a, a an icon of the Virgin Mary that has been uh, carved out to serve another purpose. Oh, yeah. I love uh, it. Love it. Chef's kiss to that. <laughs> if an item can represent to some extent for Hoven Cinema, maybe not in total, but his, <laughs> his commitment to the sacred and the profane being, you know, yin and yang. Yes. And each providing their own form, I guess, of of relief or devotion or pleasure. I mean, it's such a great little item. Yeah. You know? My second favorite or tied for favorite favorite uh, object in that film too, which I, I imagined, Adam, that you had a similar reaction to me very early on the film we see the life-size statue of the Virgin Mary that's in the convent where she she is breastfeeding Jesus and she has this like very perky kind of large breast, the statue. like, And I just cackled. Like the second I saw that, I was like, first of all, I am sure that Paul Verhoeven sketched that. You know, like, because he loves to do storyboards. I'm sure he designed that statue and was like, this is what I want. And also immediately made me think of the fourth man and the uh, the Jesus statue in the fourth man. Absolutely. And he's and all he's and all he's doing is his due diligence. Yeah. It's a male protagonist. Yes. uh, Kneeling at a, you know, a a six pack. (laughs) He has sexual fantasies about Jesus. Yeah. Exercises a bit of sweaty six pack, and here she's you know similarly drawn to this sort of strangely androgynous and uh, crotchless. It's funny because it's a basic instinct reference too when you see that there's <laughs> nothing between, uh, between Jesus's legs. But you know, in the same way that that the Virgin Mary uh, sex aid we were talking about is a great image of Verhoeven, Jesus has the ultimate Verhoeven line. I, mean, I believe it is a line taken from the Judith Brown book that the movie is based on, but it strikes me as a Verhoeven original. Jesus kind of looks at her with his bedroom eyes and he goes, where I am, there can be no shame. Yes. And I'm like, and I'm like, that's like the Verhoeven bat signal. Yeah. Yeah. If there's shame, he comes and gets rid of it. Yeah. You know, it totally lines up with his, also what he would, his strange academic type of, or what he considers his academic thinking, like, totally lines up with his view of jesus jesus the historical figure like he's always compared jesus to like a che guevara you know (laughs) like a early like but pre like socialist type of figure and i and i know that he also 
is pragmatically thinking of that in terms of sex too. Like he's saying that a real Jesus would not punish people for having sexual thoughts. You know, like there is no mm. shame. I think the G- the Fabio Jesus in Benedetta or, uh, says something about like, or she says that something about like, there's, there's no shame, you know, it's love. It's all love, you know? And yeah. I, I feel like that is, totally what Verhoeven thinks about when he thinks pragmatically about Christianity and Mm. what it really should be going for. Well, in the theological side of his movies, I mean, people always, you will not read a profile of him or an overview of the film that doesn't have some kind of parenthetical allusion to him being a member of the Jesus seminar until it disbanded and presenting papers. But I find that people, when they're mentioning that they're sort of doing due diligence and they're using it as a way to go, Ah, but you know, really, isn't that so incongruous? Mm. And it's not incongruous. Yeah, he's still an atheist. I mean, <laughs> yeah, he's an atheist. But, but what I also mean is, it's not—it's not like a, a throw-in to his life experience. So, not everyone is expected to know this guy's biography back and forward. And he's not larger than life in terms of you know his his background or his religious background, like a Scorsese or a Coppola. But like, he's someone who has said many times that in his teenage years, like he lost his mind mm-hmm. and. A Pentecost Pentecostalist Christian. It was when Martine, his wife, got mm-hmm. pregnant. He he kind of was abandoning, you know, physics and math and science, which is what he studied in school. And he came out of it, but he said that he was so deep into it mm-hmm. that he's just kind of wanted to to examine and parse that kind of faith and that kind of devotion and and that kind of belief. So even though people will say sometimes that oh, his Jesus book is juvenile or his religious commentary is juvenile and you know, it's easy to take shots at an organized religion. It's what satirists always do, and it takes no exertion. I, I give him the benefit of the doubt that he means this stuff seriously. I think it comes from a place of honest, irre- honest, irreverent uh, inquiry. It's not a throw-in, mm-hmm. you know, ever with him. I really agree with that, and I think that quality about him is just systemat- has been systematically misread for for years with varying degrees of like insincerity basically i mean a lot of directors are misunderstood and their work is misunderstood but his is just so reflexively like misrepresented that it's uh, i mean it's it's kind of insane um and this is no different like i mean again like in what universe is this actually like a non-sploitation movie you know i mean Mm. well maybe maybe in a universe that the distributor would like it to be so they can (laughs) see some money (laughs) right that's yeah You know, I I just I think it's funny that he settled in France because this was a guy who somehow managed to get thrown out of Holland, which is the bastion (laughs) of liberal tolerance. Mm -hmm. And then he managed to get thrown out of Hollywood. And what I like is it's not like he changed his shtick the second time. He made the people in the Netherlands angry and the people in America angry for the same reasons. And that takes some doing, (laughs) you know. Yeah. Yeah. He's such a wonderful picaresque figure. He just keeps getting kicked out of everywhere mm-hmm. he goes. And now he jokes about being an art filmmaker and being in France now. And it's like, I'm sure you guys remember this. I mean, L was like a hit mm-hmm. hit. <laughs> you know, I mean, not total recall, but I mean it was a smash. So there's some part of him that feels compelled after making a movie that most people like to now make something that's gonna get, you know, picketed by the Catholic Church. He he can't help it. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah, discomfort, feeling it and producing it is is part of the fuel, I think, in a good way. Do you think I do you think I rated it too low? If that is, if I if I, if I called it third tier, is it better than that? You called it third tier. 
I don't. I mean, I that's where I guess I yeah. I put it. Knowing that the guy has only made good movies, but like I would bump it up. I would bump it up. But I mean, that's I I think that's fair. Totally third tier. But I would I would bump it up to at least second second tier. Yeah. Second. All right. I might. This always gets said, but I I, you know I have to say I think it is still impressive that he's is he eighty three or what is he? Yeah. No. It's. I was going to say it is definitely what do you call it a late film? It's very much a late film of his. Yeah. And I think he's I think he's amped up the horniness in like kind of a older, horny older man kind of way, um, which I but find kind of delightful. He hasn't, and this is where, again, I say it kind of somberly. He hasn't been out in front of this movie as much, which may no. be a function of age. I mean, again, yeah. I I have ceased listening to this. I don't mean anything bad by it, but like you know, I tried really hard to get an interview with him for this and couldn't get one. Yeah. Which, given the fact that I've interviewed him many times in the past, and it's a very comfortable relationship, just kind of struck me as as odd. It's not a complaint so much as it's kind of just like you hope everything's you right. know kind of okay. Yeah. But these filmmakers, when they when they when they reach this age, like you you can't you can't take it for granted, you know. Yeah. 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 I think part of it is age. And probably ailing health, but part of it too is I think he really just he knows he he can kind of foresee the reaction to this one. He knows that uh, it's so different from from L, you know. So he's not he's just kind of letting it letting it out there. I think without like pushing it too hard. I mean, what what little he said at the the can press conference, you could already detect a certain impatience there with mm. with the kind of knee jerk interpretation. So he says something like. How could this be blasphemous? I mean, this is yes. how you can call something from the 17th century. It happened. Yes, yes. Well, he's always been good and opportunistic talking about his his movies. But, you know, I, I, he's also always wanted his movies to succeed. I can assure you he does not find the fact that Showgirls failed, like, validating for him. Mm-hmm. You know, like people say, isn't it great that it's been reclaimed as this cult hit? And he's like, actually, it would have been nice if I could have made expensive movies forever. Yeah. (laughs) Right. He's into it for the business of it as well. And so I guess the question of what he's going to do next, to some extent, will be determined by if this can do any kind of box office. Yeah. The times that he has, I mean, he seems like such a wise ass and he is. But the times that he has faced backlash, it has really hurt him yeah you know so i mean i think it's it's he's probably just protecting himself a bit too <laughs> he had that incredible moment where uh he compared himself not john lennon not a john lennon style gaffe but he he alluded to himself as jesus when he went to the rat <laughs> to pick up all his his revenue <laughs> for showgirls he talked about turning the other cheek but underneath that he mm. knew and he didn't know, I guess, that he'd make Starship Troopers and then he'd make Hollow Man and that would be it. But I think he kind of knew that he wasn't in the catbird seat anymore, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And I'll, one of the times I, I spent time with him in uh, in Key West, I asked him, I'm sure you won't mind me saying, yeah, I, I asked him, I said, you know, so what do you watch these days? Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, I, I see all the special effects movies because... I really want to do that again. Mm-hmm. And he, he said he, he sees all the special effects movies because on some level he wants to see what they're doing with them and he wants to think about things that he might be able to do with them. I mean, I don't think that that big canvas uh, sci-fi filmmaking in Hollywood was just a means to an end. I mean, I think his heart was really in it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, more humorously, I asked him, so what do you watch? He said he told me he 
really liked Michael Hanukkah, and then he said he liked The Hangover, and he kind of, we kind of <laughs> realized that if you if you split the difference between those two things, that's kind of <laughs> that's kind of L, right? Or that's kind of <laughs> so it's pretty 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 funny. Yeah. That's great. But like you, yeah, like you said, he doesn't um, have a very consistent uh, aesthetic no. style, but because he always wants to try new things aesthetically. You know, he he has a lot of recurring themes, like narratively, but um, when it comes to the process of filmmaking and the technology of filmmaking, like he's always perpetually like curious, like Mm -hmm. he really wants to do new things all the time, which is rare. Yeah, Yeah, I I think so, too. And I think if you look at something like Turkish Delight, you know, his heart was clearly with the spirit of the new wave when he made that movie. I mean, you know, he, he's aware of trends. He watches movies from all over the place. He's got, you know, a kind of searching taste. And that's why I think the slight stiffness and the kind of slight formality of this one, even though it's not that stiff or formal, because it opens with like, you know, a bird shitting in someone's eye. <laughs> but the, the, the slight formality of it is also a bit, I think, of him playing a part, you know, mm-hmm. He's playing a part, not just the references that you've smartly cited to other nun movies, but it's <laughs> it's it's the part of a kind of Euro co-production uh, period piece. Mm-hmm. And I think he's playing the part kind of out of respect and kind mm-hmm. of out of a certain calculation for how the trailer is going to cut together and what kind of mm-hmm. people he can get into the theater to see it, you know? Mm-hmm. I also really like, though, what he did stylistically with Benedetta, like uh, with what I'm sure was a very small budget like i love the um the artifice of like the cinematography his choice of like tweaking like the colors in the sky there's a comet there's a whole beautiful theme of the film with a comet mm, yeah. and those like wider shots of this you know what is obviously a limited set you know but he has these like really wide shots of the convent with the purple sky and it looks like the set from like john carpenter's ghost of mars which I really like visually, you know, mm, yeah. I think he took like uh, some serious limitations and it's so like stylistically so different from L too. I really like what he did with it. He makes the most of, of a medieval style austerity. I mean, I know this is the 17th century, but you know, he, he does, mm-hmm. he does a lot with that and, and often packs in information in the frame. That's not like at the very center of things like a, when the mother superior visits the the nuncio, yes, nuncio, yeah, I couldn't help but noticing that his servant is pregnant. Oh my god, yeah, yeah, <laughs> which just that uh, one thing. you could, yeah, boobs out, yeah, and flirting with. I mean, it's his kid, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that's great. You know, you have this kind of like it could be like a standard like great hall scene, but he just adds that that one more one more aspect there. Yeah. Well, the higher up they are in the Catholic Church is the less, like, devout they really are, the more cynical they are. I wanted to just say one kind thing about Charlotte Rampling, which is that she is- I think she's wonderful in it. She's wonderful, but she's wonderful in a way that I really admired because it's a performance. Mm. And Rampling now tends to get cast as an adornment. I don't mean in a movie like 45 Years, where she's also clearly giving a performance because she's the movie. But Rampling is kind of the ringer in a movie like this. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like... You, you, Dune. Yeah. yeah, like she's classy and she has mm-hmm. a prestige to her. She plays the hell out of this part. It's not a dislikable character. Like you see that she's been made a little cold and a little impassive by the authority. But when that's taken away from her, you see lots of uh, 
you know, contradictory and, and conflicting feelings and a really strong ethical backbone. And she delivers what has got to be the funniest line in the movie. I don't have it exactly written down, but I don't know if you guys remember it. She's talking about her faith and about how long she spent doing it. Mm-hmm. And she says something to the effect of it made, I know it's futile and pointless, but at least I've spent my entire life doing it. <laughs> and it's so sad and mm-hmm. harsh but it, it it there's a kind of a there's a there's a respectability or, or or a nobility to that. She doesn't deliver it like a laugh line. She delivers it like a, a very secular moment of revelation. She's mm-hmm. very very good. Yeah, and yeah. She, doesn't, she doesn't have to be because all she really has to do is show up and be Charlotte Rampling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. but she, she's terrific. She's wonderful in it. Yeah, and her her faith, her character's faith is the most complex and intelligent. Uh, in the film, you know, and considering uh, how much of a quote unquote realist uh, Paul Verhoeven is, I'm sure that he he was writing some of himself into it, too. But I really like I just personally delighted in seeing her able to like towards the, the last section, she really hams it up. And it just made me so happy because she she's obviously enjoying herself and it's just a great, a great performance. I'm not sure if like maybe he had wanted Isabel Huppert to play that role probably mm. originally, but Charlotte Rampling like just does a great job with it. It's almost at the end, the kind of the mask is off, you know, when death is mm. near. I also really liked her performance. I think in some ways she gives the movie, I mean, this might sound weird, but she gives this movie a kind of heart through the pain that she experiences and in a sense that Benedetta we can never really be satisfied by her character you know I mean it's she's going to be frustrating (laughs) that's the kind of the point Mm -hmm. um so that that leaves kind of Charlotte Rampling to 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 carry a lot of emotional weight in that way because although at first she seems like the most cynical I mean you have that great initial scene where she's bargaining yeah. In, in the most just like venal way and, and, and with Benedetta's father, you might think from that, oh, okay, you, you understand her. Yeah, there's heart and emotion in her intellectualism, though, because mm-hmm. she sees the big picture mm-hmm. better than anyone else in the film. Like she actually understands like what is going on, what is what is at play so much more so than than even Benedetta and it's sad you know having that knowledge and it's it's like she sees her own downfall you know 10 steps ahead yeah I'd like to think anyone listening to this at this point who wasn't planning on seeing it has now been convinced right (laughs) I hope so yeah no it's a it's a fun time yeah it's a great time it is yeah fun fun for the uh whole family I don't know (laughs) but no I I I think uh, we have reached a good point to conclude perhaps um I was going to say that uh, maybe we could talk a little bit about uh, licorice pizza just because we all have seen it, but I don't really know if that's going to work. What do you guys think? Yeah. Two thumbs up. I give it two thumbs up. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and Adam, I read your piece on it. I really enjoyed your piece on it for The Ringer. I give it two thumbs up too. Yeah. I mean, maybe the the, the one thing to, to watch for is that, uh, you know, this is an era and Verhoeven has lived through Verhoeven was problematic before problematic was a, was a household phrase in terms of film discourse. But it's interesting to see all the angles people are coming at this movie from, and I'm not necessarily thinking wrongly, but how this movie is kind of taken and what's going to happen when the first wave of reviews is over and more people start seeing it, I think is going to be 
more interesting than it has been for an Anderson movie in a long time. Mm. Mm-hmm. I'll say. Yeah. So yeah, we'll we'll just have to talk about that at some point in the future. But I'll bring our Benedetta Fest to a close here. And I always like to conclude, if we can point listeners to something you've written recently. As I mentioned, Adam, you have a great review of uh, Licorice Pizza up at the Ringer. And your book on David Fincher is out as well. And Margaret, anything you'd like to mention? Well, you know, I do this radio show. It's called No Pussyfooting. It's on KPIS FM, KPIS.FM, every other week. That's one of the main things I like to do. And I want to direct everyone's attention to this great DVD Blu-ray boutique label that's called Fun City Editions. They've already put out several like really cool movies with like fantastic packaging and a lot of research and heart has gone into it. And I've written already one booklet essay for an upcoming release that has not been announced yet. And hopefully I'm going to write more, but just uh, keep an eye on that label. They're distributed through uh, Vinegar Syndrome and uh, putting out some really good stuff. Thank you both so much for spending time in the convent with me. <laughs> it was wonderful talking to you guys about it. Yeah, it was so much fun. You've been listening to The Last Thing I Saw with your host, Nicholas Rapold. If you like what you heard, please consider signing up at rapold.substack.com. Special thanks to the Minarets for the opening music from their song, Montserrat. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.